And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Ward with a very special guest, Liza Grown Trombi, on the Coot Street Podcast. Podcast. Yes. Here we are. Welcome, Liza. It's been, you haven't been on since the last time you were on, which... Right. <laughs> close to a year ago or something? I don't remember. Um, more than that, probably. I did see your post, Jonathan, where you realized that Motel 6s are actually very short, but that doesn't make being high above it any... Right. It doesn't make it, I don't know, it doesn't make it less I, accurate. I, I, I'd always sort of imagined that it was like, I mean, Gary said he'd seen some seedy, I always picture them as seedy, holiday inns that are like multi-story with like a bar on top or that kind of thing. I always uh-huh. thought it was sort of that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I began trying to work out how that would work. And I want you to know that back in well. the 70s, this was a classy holiday inn. And, and, and the <laughs> bar, which was actually a good jazz bar, it was, a, it was an exact replica of the set from Casablanca. I mean, the, the bar was there, really? the piano was there. They even had a guy that looked like Dooley Wilson playing the piano. It was terrific. Nice. Uh, but so Motel 6, my, my latest theory is this. It's where it, the, the Gershwin Room is actually in a dirigible high above the Motel 6. Uh, it's, it's a dirigible. It's, it's, it's the Heinleinberg. It's, um, it's... Uh, never mind. <laughs> as long as it's not a whiskey bar, I don't mind. That's what I figured. Hey. But this, is the, this is the first time as locus colleagues, because the conversation can be kind of locus related and focused, that we've all been able to talk together for quite some time. I mean, here, deep in the great unpleasantness, it's been a long, long time since we've had a chance to be face to face and talk about science fiction and things. Right. How are you? Uh, you know, it's, it's been busy and um, we're still not back in the office, which I think makes everything a little cheer. And uh, Josh, who used to do a lot of the website stuff, went on to Greener Pastures uh, in, a, in a new job. He didn't die or anything. And um, has left us with a little bit of a hole in some of our tech stuff that I've been trying to fill, but I'm not really that great at it. So it's been, you know, it's been rough, but we're still making a magazine. Turns out. Um, so <laughs> well, and, and once again this year, I've noticed that the, there's there's always a lot of buzz on, on on Twitter and and Facebook and probably TikTok and Snapchat and everything. <laughs> recommended. All people shouldn't talk about those things, Gary. Don't. It's just social media. Okay, it's two syllable words with fricatives in them. Any of those combinations <laughs> of syllables are probably a web service that I don't know of. Nevertheless, there's a lot of discussion. Whenever the locust recommended reading list comes out, people are excited mm. to be on the recommended reading list. Some people are a little bit surly that they may not be on the recommended reading list. Uh, right. And some people are really happy to have a list of things from last year that they should have read. Right. We do get a lot of, we get a lot of positives out of it. And we try to, somebody said, you know, why is this one title that is on every other list out there not on your list and i said well because our reviewers didn't pick it but it's really healthy to have lists that do different things i I don't think this is on everything else is the right reason for it to be on our list i think that's just uh that leads to a sort of boring field so i'm happy i'm happy when i look at a best of list and it has totally different stuff than what we have because that, this ties to a question I think is worth asking to, at, at the beginning of the conversation. And the first question I would ask you is this, just for anybody who doesn't know, what is the Locus sign, uh, recommended reading? 
The Locust Recommended Reading List is a um, it's a compilation of titles that are voted on by our reviewers and by some invited critics and professionals who might work in different areas or see titles that we don't see as much of. And we um, start with our list of all the books we reviewed and we ask everybody for what we're missing. And then we talk about it uh, all online. We have a voting system where you can go in and say if you liked something or didn't like it or leave comments and point at it if you think other people didn't know about it. Um, and and then we come up with this list. And we try to not let it get too crazy long. Um, you know, it's already really long. I think we had a hundred and something book titles alone. And it's just... You can't expect people to look at that and be able to read it all, but they can go and they can find things that are interesting. And then I think even in some ways more valuable than just the list in the February issue, the reviewers actually talk about the books they really liked. And that to me is where you get, I'm, this is not just a list of titles, but this is, you know, which reviewer liked which book and and why. I'm going to, hang on, I'm going to stop my little dog from chewing on whatever he's chewing. Well, okay. One of my thoughts about the list, Jonathan, is, is in, 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 okay, you're back, you're back already. In support of what Liza was just saying is when I look at just right now the novel science fiction, I find it hard to see anyone liking all those novels equally. In other words, there are a lot of different tastes represented in the list. And it's not, yeah. and I don't think anybody that I've talked to has regarded it as a required reading list. I think you're right. It's a place where you can find novels that you might like. Uh, or you might find novels that you didn't know about, which I think is one of the... Uh, but it's not a... True. But I mean... Go ahead. Wouldn't you also say that, in terms of the, what it is... It, the Locus Recommended Reading List has a particular, if you will, gaze. It is a primarily North American um, view of what was worth talking about in the genre, science fiction, fantasy, horror genre community. It, it tries to be more expansive than that, but that's kind of primarily what it is and what it kind of always has been because it's had a long history of doing this. It comes out, well, now, it now comes out traditionally February. I haven't looked back to see when it started coming out in February, but it dates back, the awards date back to, what, 1971, and I think the uh, recommended reading list is somewhere around there as well. Is that roughly right, Eliza? Do you remember or no? I know the 71 is right. I don't know about the... I mean, in 71, I was um, one. Oh, yeah. well, no, no, no. None of us, apart from maybe Gary, were reading Locus in 19... <laughs> able to read Locus in 1971. I'm not right, suggesting was, that. But, um, it, yeah, that's about right. I mean, they, they happened not at the exact same time, but at similar times. And, um, and I mean, it is. There are a lot of her, uh, inherited parts of the list, but... We do try to grow and, and find different voices. And I think Gary's right. Like if you look at the list, you're not going to see this is a list that was put together by a person who only likes this. Like this is, you know, I think all in all, we had 40 people or something pitching in between fiction, and long fiction and short fiction. So there was a lot of different recommendations and a lot of people saying, hey, look at this and, and, uh, and I think this was an amazing story or this was so, and I think that shows up now in a way that it didn't quite as much previously. Sure. Yeah. I think there's always more we can do toward that, but I do think it is, it is less like this is just a specific type of book. Yeah. 
The next thing I'd ask that follows the obviously what of the list is the why of the list. I know that when I would talk to Charles Brown about it, he had a particular reason, but you've been editor-in-chief of the magazine for more than a decade. It's your baby now. <laughs> why the Locus recommended reading list? What's, what's its purpose for Locus and hopefully for, I guess, the science fiction community in your eyes? Well, what would you say Charles's why was? Oh, to influence the Hugo Awards. Exactly. Right. He, wanted, he wanted to influence. He was, he was completely, absolutely. Why well, Okay. Yeah. No, let me let, let me give you a, a less glib answer than that. Right. I think what he felt was there was work that, in his opinion, was particularly meritorious or did a particular thing in science fiction that he thought science fiction should do. So back when the Locus recommended reading list cleaved a lot closer to Charles N. Brown's recommended reading list, it was mm-hmm. about promoting what he thought was important and worthwhile for consideration for things like the Hugo Awards. That was the position. But even during his lifetime in the last decade of his editorship, that tightness of focus on his own personal taste began to change and loosen and more voices were heard. I first became active in the recommended reading list myself 20 years ago. And I know that back then it was still very much him going, well, this, yes, this, not that, for whatever the reasons were. Now, I think it's somewhat different. It's much more of a looser coalition of views with a less, well, a less intently focused purpose. But I would imagine as editor in chief and pub and publisher, you must feel like it, it, it does something for the magazine. Because the thing I know about it is it's an enormous amount of effort. <laughs> It is an enormous amount of effort. It's like it's like three months of trying really hard to look at too many titles and and talk to and get people to tell you what they think and uh, herding cats and hoping you don't miss titles and trying to read too many books. Um, but and I think that the you could have a more sort of altruistic view on influenced the, the Hugos that was um, when the Hugos put up their list, they just say, tell us your nomination. Right. And there is no, or they don't put up a list. Sorry. When they put up their ballot, they just say, tell us your nominations. And then um, the people who aren't making little lists and notebooks of every book they read that year or keeping track that way, um, put in whatever comes into their head. And I think that in, uh, in light of that, like having a, like, here are the, here are the books that, you know, our reviewers really liked and that they thought were important that they thought were forming the field or affecting the field or just exciting to read. And then there's a list that you can use when you go to fill out. And maybe you don't, I mean, obviously the list has like 20, 30 science fiction books and 30 fantasy books. The Hugo ballot has six spots per category and actually only one um, novel spot. So all of our science fiction, fantasy, horror, all of that drops into novel, correct? So um, it's, you know, it, it gives people something to look at and something to build from at least. That raises, so, a question which, which raises a question which I've had about the list, even though I'm supposedly part of it. Uh, and that is, you're right, we classify, uh, I guess, four novel categories, first novel, fantasy, horror, science fiction, and that used to be a much simpler task than it is these days. So, for example, yeah, no. one of the questions I've got, uh, well, one of the writers I'm enjoying a lot these last few months, couple of years, because I'm looking at one of his books now, is Saad Hussein, 
whose, whose books involve an elaborate high-tech future with nanoparticles in the air and global warming and gins. So the question is, does a single gin in the science fiction story make it a fantasy story? Or I is it, know. And if it's I, both, how do you decide which bin to throw it in? And, you know, I really, I, that, that title and um, what was the other one that, let me look at the list. There was another one that I really struggled with. Uh, sorry, I'm going to pull it up because my brain is well, I mean, just slightly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coming up more and more is my point. Horror, uh, this comes up in discussions of movies all the time. Is Alien a science fiction movie or a horror movie? Both camps like to claim it. Um, and is, I don't know, it's not a new question. It goes back to something like Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which, God help me, I reread for some reason. It's actually a science fiction story, um, but nobody thinks of it as that. So we have to make these decisions. Is it fantasy, science fiction, and uh, horror, or all three? Um, can we have... Right, I just... The question is, are those categories even meaningful now? Well, that's kind of the question I'm getting at. Right. I'm trying to figure out what was the other one that really gave us trouble. There was another one where we were like, there was Cyber Mage and I'm just like struggling here. Well, Cyber Mage was another one. Another one one where it just had like one little piece of fantasy in it. And then, and like by Charles's definition, like any fantasy in the book made it fantasy. Right. Um, And that science fiction had to be sort of this pure extrapolation from can we get there from here or an alternate history? Could we have gotten there from then? Um, Mm. But it's, it is really, I feel like there's such a blending right now of science and technology more than we necessarily. And, and, and partly in technology, partly in support of that is when you look at the uh, category, the two categories, that we have young adult novels and first novels. Don't try to make the distinction between science fiction and fantasy and horror. And some of those first novels I'm looking at, A Master of Jinn being one of them, are kind of all over the map in terms of which I... Right. Well, no. Well, and I I mean, that is actually, that's a relief for me when I'm like, oh, yay, it's a first it's a novel. first novel, I don't we don't have to worry about it. You know how many times that happens. Let's segue into the list itself, if we can, because I'm sure that for people listening to this conversation, as interested as they are in the history of the list, they're probably also interested in what comes away as, actually, not the awards per se, but just the recommended reading notness of it. Are we seeing things change? I know that both at, usually in the February issue, but I think maybe this year in the February and March issues, there's analysis of changes in magazines and books scene, all these kind of things. Uh, do you see anything, or did the magazine see anything different in 2021 uh, than it has in recent years, to your not to, to, to your recollection. I don't know. I mean, it's there's so much of like just more of the same. I do think I think in in short stories we so we asked all that we just finished up the magazine summary for the issue that's about to come out, and sure. um, a lot of people were saying that they just saw writers writing more and more dark fiction like that things were more dystopian and more apocalyptic and and they're looking for more and more hopeful um fiction and more sort of optimistic things and it's like those two things are not meeting in our current situation which makes it's a sign of the times you know that we're 
seeing that. But I don't know if you look at the novels, if you can say that, because the novels, like some of these novels took years. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? So that, you know, what do you and think? I, I mean, you're... You're reading all these. What do you think of this? Oh, I'm reading all of these. Let's not pretend anybody out there is reading all these. I'm reading as much as I can and less than Gary. I will say that I think that the possibly the most interesting bellwether category in the Locus Awards is the first novel category mm-hmm. because that's mm-hmm. where you see the age of change. I mean, I realized a while ago that the true interest in the, in the Locus recommended reading list, for me at least, isn't what gets into the awards or what wins awards or the Locus Awards. It isn't necessarily anything else. It's how things actually come onto the list and how they rank. And you can suddenly see that, like if you go back to the mid-1980s, if you go back to the mid-1980s and look at cyberpunk, the recommendations and uh, follow a couple of years behind the awards, you suddenly see that science fi- cyberpunk writers are more popular and are, are, are showing up in the top five or ten, you know, a little bit later on. So when you look now at the recommended reading list and the way that plays into the voted Locus Awards, you'll see that writers whose careers are on the upswing and whose reputations are on the upswing begin to appear more. What the first novel category gives you is the, those people making their move over into um, science, into book public book publishing and so you're seeing writers like this year, Elily Yud has her first novel out. Um, has has a major uh, novel coming. In fact, probably one of the undersung publishers of first novels in 2021 is uh, Erwan, who I don't hear talked about much, but published three or four absolutely outstanding first novels in 2021 or second, I mean, like they, they're all consuming by Cassandra Core. They had On Fragile Waves by E. Lily Yu. They had The Unraveling by Benjamin Rosenbaum. Now, these books are exactly what you've talked about, blending of science fiction and fantasy. They are queerer. They are more diverse in authorship, and that's increasing. You get you know books like C.O. Clarke's The Unbroken, up along with, say, Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun, which are these non-Western focused, queer, diverse, uh, you know, books. Uh, she Who Became the Sun was written by an Australian writer, all these kind of things. That I think is, is, is a useful thing in the awards, to, in the list to look for and gives people things to go looking for to read. Right. Well, and I do think it's very useful to have novel split up this way, because I think that if you just look at the Hugos and the Nebulas and there's, you know, whatever it is, five to six books that are titles that make finalists and then uh, you're on to the awards and that's it. I do think you would miss a lot of really exciting stuff that's happening. And I do think it's exciting when people make that jump from I've been writing short fiction for a long time and here I go with my first novel. And like some of these people have been writing excellent short fiction for a long time. And, and there's a little bit of attention to that with some of the awards where you see like the Crawford has the first fantasy or the, um, you know, you see different ways that uh, the awards are given. The um, What's the first paperback? What's the British first oh, the paperback Dick, award? The Dick Award. The award. Is original paperback. So you break out a little bit of that. Um, we're just looking at the best novel. Well, you know, although, thing. Although and, I would argue that in addition to the first novel category, a way of measuring uh, people who are, arriving on the scene in important ways is the collections because the collections tend to go in two directions. I mean, there are best of collections. There are best of Elizabeth Hand, best of Walter John Williams, which are important 
a lot of these come from Subterranean Press, which does a terrific job. But one of the books uh, on on the collections list is a first book, which happened to win this year's Crawford Award, and it's Usman Malik's um, The uh, Midnight Doorways, uh, Fables from Pakistan, which reflects something else about the list, because Jonathan, you'd mentioned earlier that there is kind of a a North American, certainly an Anglophone bias to it. Um, and this is a book which has only been published in Pakistan so far, so far although Usman tells me it's coming out from Hachette, India at some time soon. Uh, I think there has been an effort in the last decade or so f- to find books like this. It's, it's, it's a challenge to do it because sometimes uh, you just don't see copies of it. When a couple of the novels that I was, uh, a couple of the books that I had to send out to jurors of the Crawford Ward, I simply had to get copies from Air Juan in one case, from, uh, from uh, what is it? I forget the name of the publisher of uh, Usman's book. But the fact is that when people wonder why they're left off the list, we have to see the book. Somebody has to see these books. They have to be brought to right. our attention. Right. And we do struggle. Like there was one book that came in right at the end of December, which probably should have been on our nonfiction list, and it may appear on our next year nonfiction list. We don't have a lot of wiggle room for things to come in late right now because we're at home. I go mm. to the office once a week, right? Like it's just, it's too easy to miss stuff. And this is somebody who was sort of diligently sending in as soon as it came out. But God, the things that come out in December, it's really hard for us to look at. It's true. You know? I mean, I don't think that we should be embarrassed or apologetic for the fact that Locus is published in San Francisco, primarily written by people based in North America and primarily focuses on the North American publishing industry. But I think it is true that the the magazine generally has tried to be more aware. And I think that through the internet, we've been able to become more connected to to find things. So you get books from Hachette India, you get books like the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction, uh, the volume two, which is on this year's list. You get things like... um, Oh, you know, the Gautam Bhatia novel was on last year. You're going to see that this last year, I think, as well. Uh, it was Summit Basu's novel was on it, the one that's going to be republished under a new title uh, by Tor.com le- uh, later in the year. You get these kind of things happening, and that's encouraging whilst also acknowledging that it's always something that we're going to have to work at and do better at. And, I mean, some of that has been reflected in changes to the review staff, changes to the re- review staff feed into changes to the group of people who uh, actually contribute to the recommended reading list, which itself right. is invalid because that then feeds into the pre-fill and uh, on the, uh, the, the the voting ballot and also feeds into what hopefully people are talking about a little. But there, there are well, some genuine, yeah. I just think we see more also on our side, like more effort to be uh, aware of what is out there and trying to get it, even if it isn't being sent. Like we do work very hard to see everything but also you know to just be not all the time books in books out or reviews out but actually chase things down when we hear about them but it is work it's yeah actually this is maybe m- more a personal interest than uh, one to the, the audience at large but when i worked at locust there was a simple life cycle to books being available and being aware of them. You would hear of a book being sold to a publisher. You'd hear of the manuscript being delivered. Maybe you'd be able to get a hold of the manuscript if you were Charles. You would read it. You'd see an advanced cover. You'd see advanced review copies. Then you'd see the first copies before they go to stores and then be out in the world and you'd feel like the book had been out for four years already. Yep. Now, though, first of all, that, ha- that can happen much more quickly. You know, the whole area, has, that whole thing has changed. And in terms of getting hold of books, a- advanced review copies are 
much scarcer than they used to be. Do you feel that that kind of promotional awareness cycle has changed during your time and it, that it does or doesn't impact how we cover things? Oh, I think it definitely does. I mean, we used to we used to just get everything sent in print and you would pick up the book, you would look at it, you would open it up and read a paragraph or two. If you didn't know the author, you would, you know, compare, you would send it off to our intrepid reviews editor who would also take a look at it and, you know, and we would figure out who is the best match on the reviewing staff and, and then you're off to the races. And now uh, I feel like even, even books that you know are getting a big push, there's, you know, NetGalley and Edelweiss and like, they're not, it, it doesn't show up on your doorstep anymore. Like you have to go and see what is out there and chase it down. And there are times when we are chasing books that we know they want us to review. We know it. We know the authors and there's, and, and I don't know if it's, I mean, publicity always has a high turnover rate. So we struggle with that, but mm-hmm. I don't know if there's just the digital age has brought a lot of facility to get people things, but I think in some ways it's like, well, I put it on NetGalley and I'm done. And, mm-hmm. and we really have to fight. I mean, you've seen this, Jonathan, I've heard you complain about like, I'm trying to get a hold of this book on NetGalley and even publishers that we have strong relationships with that we know are not, you know, sometimes I think it's that they have, you know, are the arcs being handled by the newest publicist? I don't know. I don't know what they're yeah. doing, but sometimes, man, it is a fight to get a book to a reviewer. I, I, I think, you know, and we're known quantity. And, and another factor that enters into this is, although it sounds, again, sounds like an old fart talking, I suppose. I don't think e-publishing has quite gotten its act together yet. I get copies of books on Kindle. I get copies of books that I, on, email, where, on e-books, on various formats. Where the formatting is just awful. I'm reading a very good collection of stories now, where in the ebook, this is actually an e arc. I shouldn't say it's the ebook, it's the e arc. The titles of stories are not included at the beginnings of each story. They're in the title of, so you have to go back to the table of contents to figure out what story you're reading. Somebody's. And Ellen Dallow, Ellen Dallow won't even look at something if it doesn't have running headers, right? Like she's like, don't send me it if it doesn't have running headers with the title. Yeah, and and it seems to me that after almost 20 years of fairly widespread e-publishing, somebody would figure out how to program this stuff properly. Yeah. Uh, do you remember, I mean, in, in, in sympathy with the publishers during these difficult times, they are arcs. They are. I mean, they arcs. aren't the books. As long as they're fixed in the actual published version, that's what really counts. Uh, and also, I mean, we are, and I think, you know, this is the locus vision, profoundly grateful to the publishers who make these available to us, which they don't have to do, you know. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we are in partnership to, with them. We are, but in order for them to get a review, the minimum requirement is that we get the text. And sometimes it just doesn't, it, it's a lot of work. And then we get it in but, a readable format. <laughs> I mean, okay. I'm, 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 try. I mean, it's hard. You know, sometimes books come out and you're like, oh my God. This book came out, we, we didn't look at it, we never saw any version of it, and it's out. And like, what happened? And then people were upset, and we're like, ah, I don't know what to say, you know? But sometimes everybody's trying. From your own perspective, having been, you know, spent the last, you know, spent 2021 reading science fiction and fantasy in a crazy, difficult year, and having, you know, overseen assembling this issue and everything else. Are there books that particularly stand out off the top of your head as being 
outstanding books of 2021? If you were to like run down roughly category by category? That's a dirty trick. I thought Um, that was as generously as I could put that one. I did. Let let me rephrase Jonathan's question to make it less uh, self-conscious making. What do you hear about? I mean, when you go down to the book, what what do you hear reviewers and, and fellow staff members talking about uh, what, whatever your own preferences are, what are the big buzz books this past year? Right. Well, I think that uh, Arkady Martin's Desolation Called Peace was it got the most votes of any of the books in the science fiction category, and it got the most the sort of the best reviews and commentary that I saw. And I don't know if this is like she's just uh, uh, hit, Arkady's just hitting that hot spot for Locus reviewers or if, um, you know, or how to even speak to it. Cause I think this is book, is this book three or book two, book two. in the series? Book it's book two. Um, and the first book was great. I actually haven't read a desolation called peace. It's like very high on my to be read list, but, um, it definitely got the biggest buzz. I think after that, I'm trying to look here and see what was your favorite on this science fiction? All of the science fiction books. Gary, the science fiction books. I, well, I was on a panel uh, about the best books of the year, and the one that came up, I think, for everybody on the panel was the Arcady Martin book. It's, I think, for one thing, mm-hmm. it is a very, it, it, it's in some ways, it's old fashioned science fiction. It's not got a gimmick in it. It's solid. I, I'm, I'm skeptical about the term world building, but it does things that classic science fiction novels do well. And politically, it's extremely sophisticated. Um, as was her first novel. As a matter of fact, this is one of the few times when I read uh, the first novel in order to read the second novel because the second one. So, so, right. so that may be the outstanding novel of the year. There were others that I liked a lot, obviously. But uh, I liked Far, Far from the Light of Heaven by Todd A. Thompson. Which I did not see. Right. I, which was, I, I mean, it was it was it's kind of a wacky story where you're just like there's a bunch of people thrown together in this ship that's sort of out of control and there's a serial killer who's killed most of mm-hmm. the um the, it's a colonist ship and there's like been mass murders and all this politics and there's personal issues between the i mean and it's and there's you know a serial killer running around and there's weird shit happening and and i and it's kind of fabulous and i'm hoping he uh, does more of that um, I'm trying to see like what else. I mean, honestly, my reading has been so based on who I'm reviewing or who I'm interviewing at this point. Well, Jonathan, um, do you have a title that you want to throw in besides Arcadia yeah, Martin? Well, 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 I mean, okay. Uh, uh, the thing that's distorted for me here is that I, I, I missed reading a, des- uh, a memory called Empire when it came out. I only read it after it won the Hugo Award. And then I was sufficiently impressed with it that I abused my contacts to get a copy early. So I actually read it back in 2020, but no, I adored the book. <laughs> <laughs> I adored it. I mean, it really is a, I mean, for me, and having sp- spoken to Arcadia about it as a writer who comes not from the tradition that people always accredit her from coming to, but from a, from a uh, CJ Cherry tradition as a lover of CJ Cherry's books. I love it. It, mm. it is a wonderful, wonderful book. I also loved Monica Burns, the actual star which is a big, interesting, complicated, unusual kind of book and that I would recommend very highly out of the science fiction titles. I thought Far From the Light of Heaven, which you were talking about, uh, Liza, the Tade Thompson, which came out towards the end of the year, which is a goofy, diverse, base adventure kind of book, was just a, a whole pile of fun and very, very different 
from his previous books. And I, just, I, I loved it. That was great. I mean, that's for science fiction. For me, for fantasy, there were a lot of books to love, but I don't know that based on my own pre- reading prejudices, I liked anything as much as I liked the Joe Abercrombie book, The Wisdom of Crowds, which uh, closed out his current series. Well, I can throw out, there's one other science fiction novel, which has not gotten as much discussion discussion as it might have, considering how high profile the author is. And that was Nadia Korofor's Noor, which is a, mm. uh, again, it's, it's, it's a science fiction adventure uh, set in northern Nigeria, which is a little bit different from what else she's done and what else even Tade Thompson is. It's not, it's not set in the big urban centers. Uh, it deals with uh, a whirl, a kind of permanent whirlwind, which is a kind of great image. Uh, and it's a really fast-moving uh, chase adventure to speak of, uh, which in, in some ways is something she does very well. She writes very kinetic, uh, fast-moving novels. And this, this works as an adventure novel as well as anything. Uh, maybe it's uh, uh, because it is in a non-urban setting. I don't know. Uh, it certainly has gotten good reviews. It certainly has gotten a good reception, but I haven't heard as much talk about it as I expected. Yeah. And from, from let me throw out a couple of fantasy titles too, because uh, I like. I'm, I'm I'm just repeating what I said on a uh, at, at a con here in Chicago two weeks ago, which only one person who's listening to this might have actually been at that session. I really liked. Um, the Memory Theater by Karen Tidbeck, uh, which is kind of an expansion of ideas that she had in earlier short stories. I really thought that M. Rickert's The Shipbuilder of Belle Ferie, which is a novel-length version of an M. Rickert story. Her first novel was not really that. Her first novel was a little bit sunnier than this. This is a very ominous and uh, powerful thing. And I, you, you can't let a novel a year go by now without mentioning whatever Lobby Tidhard did which was always weird and strange. <laughs> right? And he did two weird and strange things. And right? I did it. I enjoyed The Hood. I didn't. I haven't read The Escapement yet. I, might. And, and yeah, there's, I mean, this whole list is like all things I need to read. Yeah. yeah. Which is the whole point of it. That's what it used to be for, for me right. before I got involved. And I am curious, sort of curious yeah. about his next book and uh, Lovey Tidar's next book and whether we're going to get to cover it because it's more mainstream and about history of Israel. So I'm not sure it quite fits in, but we'll see. But yeah. Right. Well, and he's, you know, he's said that he, he wants to see if he can do this in a mainstream way, write fiction and, and talk about important things. In a, and I think that's, I think he actually can do that, but I can't imagine him really succeeding in writing things without having like being like he could he can call it whatever he wants but it's still going to be his fiction and his fiction's weird right it's always going to be weird which is fabulous i'm I'm very curious about it because there is a whole first of all there's a tradition there's a kind of magic realism tradition even in israeli fiction and in fiction that deals with the history so uh, when you look at the haran appelfeld and, and people like that uh so to some extent i expect something like you're saying some kind of magical undercurrent. On the other hand, there is this sense that you get from, from Lavie, and I've gotten it in the past from other writers who, well, what they used to call breaking out of the ghetto. You want to, you want to make a reputation for yourself among readers who have never heard of you. And that's worked sometimes very well for writers. Sometimes it's worked disastrously badly for writers. I mean, I remember when, who was it? John Brunner, who wrote a historical novel called the great i think it was called the great steamboat race or something and it was mm. going to be, it was going to be his ticket into the mainstream i may have the title wrong it completely disappeared and uh, it, he's today remembered only 
and deservedly for his science fiction. I don't, I hope that doesn't happen to Lobbyer. I hope it's a hugely successful. The other side of the coin, there was, let me think, there was the guy who's, oh, Michael, he was a science fiction writer in the early 50s and wrote a Civil War historical novel for which I think he got a Pulitzer Prize. And after that, he was a mainstream writer. Somebody will, I'll, I'll remember the name by the time we're, we're done with <laughs> or just or somebody will somebody will correct us on uh, on our comments section right well so what about you jonathan what were your did you say your fantasy fantasy I, mean, I i adored the joe abercrombie book i mean loving that series i enjoyed zen cho's uh blackwater sister very much i think cho's wonderful i've been an advocate of saad hussein's for a for a long time and Cyber Mage is a really, really, really enjoyable book. Um, I was del- I was uh, waiting for Soul Star, the last of the CL Pope trilogy, to come out, and I thought she did a great job of finishing that up. And probably the one on here that I'm meaning to read is No Gods, No Monsters, the Cadwell Turnbull book, which there's a lot of buzz around around the Locus offices for, and which I've only heard good things. So that's on my sort of my to read out of that and sort of in that fantasy slipstream in a way we have always had a thing where either there's a fantasy list or a fantasy dark fantasy or whatever we've got the horror list and there's a bit of a, a an overlap and i did read stephen graham jones's book my heart is a chainsaw and he's terrific i still haven't read a stephen king book in the last 15 years because i just can't find time to read to and like the look of them and, you know, I also enjoyed uh, Revelator by Daryl Gregory, which I thought was a terrific book. Well, that was a lot of fun, too. And right. while you were speaking, of that course, was... I was able to think of the name I haven't thought of. It was Michael Shara, S-H-A-A-R-A. He started out selling in the science fiction magazines in the 50s and 60s, had a reputation, wrote a novel, a Civil War novel called The Killer Angels, which won the 1974 Pulitzer Prize, after which, as far as I know, the science fiction field never heard from him again, but I could be wrong about that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I read uh, Revelator, obviously, and enjoyed that a lot. And sure. My Heart of the Chainsaw, which I really liked. Um, also, The Book of Accidents by Jeff Hendig, I really liked. I've been reading a lot of his um, books. Yeah, and, a copy and here. It looks great. It looks great. And I heard only terrific things about it. Same for right? um, Sorrowland, the River Solomon. Thriller. Mm-hmm. He leans into uh, Thriller a little more, but um, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, probably the category where I read least this year was young adult. I usually read a little bit of it this year. I think I read like two books that could be considered young adult, one of which was Tercial and Eleanor, the uh, Garth Nick's Old Kingdom novel, which I enjoyed a great deal. But there, uh, there were, I mean, I didn't read Victories Greater Than Death, the Charlie Jane Anders, which I meant to. But there's a lot of books that people were talking up. Um, I don't know that that I don't know to what extent any of us have particularly read a lot of YA. We've got people we rely on for that, and Colleen Mondor, Alex Brown. Was there thought, anything particularly that stood out for you guys? Well, I love the Charlie Jane Anders book. I thought it's it's just classic, good old fashioned fun space opera. There's a little bit of Douglas Adams in it. There's a, a little bit of uh, um, of 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 really pulp space opera, and 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 the other one which I. I read, which was equally fun, even though it was a little bit darker. It was actually was darker than the first one. It was Naomi Critcher's Chaos on Catnet, which sequel to Catfishing right. on Catnet, which I guess is the the uh, Naomi Critcher is more like what's happening in uh, young adults fiction today. It's it's a little bit dark. There's a really villainous character in it. The first one had a really horrible father in it, so it deals with issues like. Um, 
The one thing I've always said uh, more than once on the podcast is most science fiction readers that I know or fantasy readers will gladly pick up a YA novel and not object to the fact that it's written for a YA audience. Um, and by the same token, young readers will pick up an adult science fiction novel and not care that it's not for a YA audience. Well, I think that Naomi Kritzer has a really good way of sort of um, capturing the the feeling of being a teen and, and being able to use slang and terms that, that um, teenagers are using without make, bogging it down mm-hmm. in that. And, and the, the plots are strong and the characters are really strong. And so... Even, you know, even though a lot of the stuff ends up happening online and there's a lot of abbreviations and things that, like it, I, like that can totally make me bounce off a book and I've been loving those books. So, well, one of the things, um, one of the things she writes about is she writes about kids who are an outsiders, uh, Charlie Jane, all of the outside, all of the teen heroes on the starship and victories greater than death and, and the sequel are outsider kids on earth. And my, my sense is that so many science fiction and fantasy readers were outsider kids themselves that even in their 50s and 60s they're still identifying with those young kids right yeah no i actually i i am uh i'm really impressed with i think i think in some ways that's almost harder than writing just straight adult fiction is being able to write something that encapsulates both the sort of high energy drama that happens when you're a teenager and the and the way that everything is an unknown and everything is a new challenge and and be able to put that into a story that adults will still read. That's just really uh, impressive. Um, I wish that I was, <laughs> I just don't feel very good at reading right now, unfortunately. <laughs> because I get it. I almost take everything in an audio. Oh, really? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm completely caught up with two here. I just want to say like, Anything that Ursula Vernon writes, I have read at this point because it's all. <laughs> and there's a new. Well, these are the, the foggy years. These are well, they just are. The foggy and, years. and I'm like, you know, I read um, off the list for a second. I read um, Creamy Mohammed's. She, she has a couple the Broken of Darkness? Uh, no- novellas that just came out. Well, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, she has uh, uh, the, a migration of clouds and. Yes. I'm just the other one that I, uh, the annual migration of clouds and and what can we offer you tonight? And there's a third one. Yeah, I don't know the title to hand, but those two, yeah. So, but anyway, um, the annual migration of clouds is about a teenager, but it feels it just feels like science fiction, and you know it's post-apocalyptic, and there's a <laughs> there's a virus. How <laughs> I many she wrote this before COVID happened? She was like, I think I just like published a plague book in the middle of a plague, but um, but it is different enough. It is very much different enough, but it really does some of that work of of bringing the reader into experience the the stru- the like feeling of being pulled in multiple directions that teenagers have when they're ready to sort of leave, but their families all at home and like all this stuff. But in this post-apocalyptic space, that is. It's not Mad Max and it's not the road, but it's very peaceful. Um, but it is there, like all of the pieces of it are there where you have, to, they're, they're struggling for survival. It's really interesting. And so I think that I'm becoming more and more impressed by that, that sort of crossover space and mm. how different it is. Well, that, that kind of brings up the, the, the aspect of the list that I'm least familiar with. One of the novels was, one of the horror novels was Premium Muhammad's uh, A Broken Darkness. Darkness, yeah. Uh, and 
Uh, it's also the smallest list we have on the recommendations. Now, that's partly because we only have a couple of people who do horror. I don't know, and, and, and I know there's a whole world of horror out there I'm not in touch with anymore. I mean, on that list, I'd read Daryl Gregory, and I kind of uh, try to keep up with, um, well, let me see. Besides Daryl Gregory, there's obviously... River Solomon, maybe? River Solomon and Stephen Graham Jones, uh, who's just a terrific writer by any standard. I mean, by this point, I think Stephen Graham Jones is a, is a major figure, um, you know, genre or not genre. Uh, and the River Solomon I'm familiar with. Um, there are classic writers like Joe Lansdale, who I know even though I don't know the current work. But I sometimes get a sense that there's this big kind of mash up of fantasy and science fiction where everybody reads back and forth. And then horror, there's some overlap, but there's a large horror community out to the side that seems to read things that most of the people I know don't read. Is that my perception or is that real? I think some of that is is about who's publishing it too. I think a lot of horror lives in the independent press and they're just not, you know, their arts, you know, tour open tour Nightfire, the new horror imprint. And I do think we see over the last decade that horror is growing and becoming more mainstreamed again in publishing after sort of the crash from the late eighties and nineties. But, um, I mean, explosion and then crash. Um, but I do, I agree. I think there's a lot going on out there that is, it's just, it's not necessarily breaking out to people who don't sort of live in a space where they'd see it, you know, even just in a space on the internet where they'd see it. You know, we all have our own internet. When I look at nominees for things like the uh, Stoker Awards, I find myself recognizing fewer and fewer names each year, it seems. And it's probably my fault. That all happened, No, no, look, <laughs> we spoke earlier about first novels. So rather than perhaps revisiting that, what I'd ask you as we come to the end of the, the novel portion of it, you've seen the, the, the voting, the discussion, the enthusiasm amongst reviewers. When you... Um, collapse that down in your mind a little into the novels that stood out most. We talked about some, but were there any of the first novelists that you really felt uh, got a, a high level of attention from uh, from Locus? For example, I mean, my own impression is that Master of Gin, the P. Jelly Clark yeah. debut novel, which ties in with his earlier work, was something that re- reviewers were very enthusiastic about. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think... Um, I think Cassandra Cobb, people are excited about uh, their works and uh, Benjamin Rosenbaum, like everyone seems to love that book. Mm. Um, and I think Nevo um, with the um, Chosen and the Beautiful. The Chosen and the Beautiful is the Gatsby mm. reboot. Yeah. And that's like, I think that she's just show, proving herself to be a really uh, skilled writer. Um, and and at that length, which is really the trick, is to you know make that jump from I was a short fiction writer to now I'm doing novels. So um, we, won't, we won't drag you through all the categories because I know you have dinner to cook, which, do, which must do. must be on must be on your mind. Uh, but just quickly, bit. I mean, I don't think there's been a year when I've been part of the recommended reading list where we haven't ended up saying something to the effect that it was a surprisingly good year for short story collection, except for the mm. fact that it can never be surprising because it seems to be always the case. But this really <laughs> seems to have been an almost <laughs> overflowingly good year 
for short story collections, right. whether it's Charlie Anders or Nina Allen with uh, The Art of Space Travel, or whether it's Kelly Robson with Alias Space and Other Stories, or Usman Malik. It just seems a particularly great time for short fiction. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I do... Well, I think, like, Tor.com picking up some collections and Titan is picking up collections. I think we're seeing a little bit more... Um, a little bit more action in larger presses, but I mean, it's still mm. 75% easily all small presses here putting these out, right? It's small beer and Fairwood and coffee press and trepidatio. Is that, am I, I don't know if I'm, um, mm. and, and, uh, did I say subterranean? If I did already, they need to be said twice because subterranean carries a lot of the collections. Mm. Um, but I'm really glad. I'm glad that the small presses are doing the work and, and I'm, you know, happy to see Tor.com pick up some. Is that new? Like, I don't remember them really doing collections. My impression, I'm not speaking as an insider here, is that Tor.com is spreading its wings a little bit in a few areas. So it's publishing more novels. The novels are quite often expansions of things they've done at novella length. They're bringing in people who, they're publishing a few collections. I have this feeling, I don't know it to be 100% correct, that maybe... Um, like the Veronica Shannos book, Burning Girls and Other Stories, which is a terrific, terrific collection. Um, maybe it was originally going to be like a novella that they were going to do, and then it became possible to do this instead, so they did this instead. So I think there's a little bit of vari- variability. And also you're seeing them now, I think, just in 2022, moving into anthologies as well, because they're publishing yeah. Africa Risen later in the year, which is the uh, Peki Donald, Okazichinovway, uh, not, uh, anthology with Zelda Knight and Cherie Renee Thomas. And they're also doing uh, the an anthology of uh, Chinese science fiction from sort of uh, female and I think it's queer voices. So there's a couple of things like that they're doing, which are, which are different for them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I think, I think collections are, are fat. I mean, I love collections and anthologies. I, do too. I think they're fabulous. Uh, I, I think it's a way. Just to, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish your thought. No, I was probably going to say the same thing was it's just such a nice way to get a sense of, who's out there and what they're writing. And I think one of the, uh, 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 my sense is that even uh, reliable publishers are, are, are stretching their wings a little bit. I mean, one of the things I've said, I think I said this in a review of probably in this month's issue, that you know, one of the signs of a good collection for me is, is seeing Small Beer Press on it. And Small Beer did the Isabel Yap collection this year. They did uh, an Elia Don Johnson collection. Uh, they did, um, Charles, let's see, no, what did they do? Oh, they, they, they did the, the Jet Ford collection and they did the extended version of Zen Cho's Spirits Abroad, uh, which is another right. one of those books that I think showed up on our recommended list years ago when it had only been published in Malaysia. Um, so there, and, and I think that's true. My, and, and my sense is that there must be at least something of a market for short story collections for so many publishers to be doing them in whatever, you know, modest printings they're doing, they seem to be doing well. I think there's a survivable audience for them. I do. I mean, I don't think it's an enormous audience, but I think it's a survivable and an important one. Now, before Liza's entirely consumed by her children's desire for dinner, uh, which is entirely understandable, uh, we should begin to sort of bring this to a close by saying all of this and more is in the February issue of Locus, which you can buy online at www.locusmag.com. I don't yep. think there's too many Ws. I think and the magazine you, summary was broken out out of the February issue because yes. we had to cover World War. Right. So that will so appear in March. And the book summaries will appear in April because it's 
It's just been that kind of year. Yeah. And the last I should also say that, I mean, based on my extensive quick research, mm-hmm. this was the 39th consecutive year of February issues where uh, Locus has provided a year in review overview. So next year will be the 40th one of those. So it's quite a body of overview of the field. And I, right. I, I was looking at, no, I was looking at the list from 20 years ago, which I won't go into now. But I think before we end, we should acknowledge that two of the founding people, almost of Locus, we've lost in the last uh, in the last couple of months. Right. Uh, the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first full time employee of Locus Magazine was Farron Miller, who was also the senior reviewer for decades, um, and who I only met once or twice. Jonathan met a few times, and Liza, I don't think you ever met at all. Oh, more than a few times. I worked with Farron uh, for a year. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, Farron was a passionate, wonderful person who loved science fiction and music, possibly loved mu- music even more than science fiction, worked in the Oakland offices from the early 1980s, uh, and actually is a contributor to that first ever Locust recommended reading issue. Ah. Uh, right, through till, yeah. And the other... And then... Go ahead. The other, the other name is somebody who... Uh, Bill Contento, who produced these annual, these really large volumes with Charles Brown of the Year in science fiction. I have a couple of those. I don't know what to do with them. Nobody wants a giant <laughs> volume, an encyclopedia-sized volume called 1982 in science fiction. I guess there were years of these. But Bill, who I did meet a few, is one of the rare uh, scholars and uh, indexers and bibliographers who earned equal right. amounts of respect from librarians, from academics, and from fans. Uh, what he was yeah. able to do with uh, with his indexes is still an invaluable part of the field. What he started is now crucial to all of us who do any kind of research. Yeah, oh, yeah. no, I, I've, I've heard more people say, you know, oh my gosh, those indexes are so, I use them all the time and they're so important to me. And um, unfortunately he did slow down at the end. He, he had really bad glaucoma yeah. and was having a very difficult time reading uh, to enter or stuff, but it, he was such a, he was the bibliographer down to the bone and he really, he kept trying to do it right up to, uh, the end. And we didn't mm. even know, we didn't, I didn't know that he had cancer. Yeah, I didn't know he was a either. sweet guy though. And he was very sort of unproposing. He was quiet. He would say, Oh, well, I'll come and sit behind the table. And he would sit behind the table, but then people would come up and he would sell locusts. He would just chat about everything and talk about books. And, and next thing you know, people would be subscribing. And he was, he was great that way. Uh, we didn't hang out with him that much, but he was, he would come and, and sit yeah. behind the table and he was fantastic. And so. I, I think a great example of that kind of person in the field who contributes far more than most people realize. I mean, I think, the Contento indexes and the work that he did with Charles and everything ended up feeding into the base of the Internet Science Fiction Database, which is a critical tool that I use all the time and I think you use all the time. Um, and so the work he did, and well, first of all, the work he did will be greatly missed, but also, I mean, he will be too. I mean, both both he and Farron, you know, I mean, it's one of those odd links that my wife, Marianne Jablon, was a managing editor at Locus for some years and she worked in the offices with Farron and with Bill and several other people who passed away who worked with uh, with the magazine. This is the fifth person she worked with in the office who's now passed away because the magazine's been around for so long. Fortunately, there was fresh blood coming in as well, and Locus continued. And, you know, this is a conversation, I suppose, at least in terms of recommended reading, that we would continue in February of 2023, I suppose. 
I would enjoy that. Let's do that. Yeah, the, because right. it, we'll pick up oh, where we left off. <laughs> no, no. The conversation will pick up in the bar and world or something. Right. We will we will continue this conversation and we will let everyone else in on where we are in twenty three. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. So until, well, it's really for, good to see you. Okay. Uh, until Jonathan and I come back together or possibly with another guest sometime in another couple of weeks, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. Thank you, Liza. And thank you, Liza, so much. Thank you.